Welcome to Coffee with the College, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Healthcare Executives, Wisconsin chapter. Our goal is for listeners to find this podcast as relaxing as coffee with friends and just as comfortable as our guests and observers banter about questions that are on all of our minds. If you've listened to the podcast before, you're familiar with the drill. I'm your host, Janet Schultz. I'm Chief Information Officer at a human services company called MyPath. Our observers today are Madeline Hansen, who's an operations manager in the Mayo Clinic Health System, Department of Family Medicine, and Rachel Kabelka, Manager, Strategic Initiatives for Advocate Health. Today, you're listening to the second of two podcasts with our guest, Dr. Nicole Yule. Dr. Yule is a health psychologist with over 20 years of experience in healthcare as a provider, teacher, and leader. She teaches healthcare professionals to harness the pillars of interpersonal wellness to create mentally healthy workplaces. She speaks and consults with healthcare organizations across the country and is the author of Well To Do, a guide to take charge, set goals, and improve your health. Welcome, Nicole. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Welcome, Nicole. So happy to be chatting with you again. Yes, this is Madeline. So excited to have you back with us today. Thank you. Nicole, in your work as a health psychologist, you've not only have helped leaders develop skills for their own well-being and that of their teams, um, but you've also worked with organizations related to leadership and specifically leadership's impact on the patient experience. And so today we want to explore that topic with you. So I want to get us started with this question. Um, Usually when we talk about patient experience, we talk a lot about the frontline workforce role. But Nicole, you feel leadership is key as well. So set that stage for us. Talk to us a little bit more about that. Sure. So in our uh, previous podcast, we talked a little bit about this and the, the that the necessary uh, component of the leader as the uh, not only the leader of logistics and, and operations, but also setting the culture for well-being and for that true interpersonal wellness. So we, um, through research, have determined that, interestingly, when a leader is rated um, even one point higher than they were before, that burnout scores decrease by nine points. So we know that when people are less burned out, they tend to provide a better customer experience. And they also, in addition, tend to have better engagement. So that's a you know two birds with one stone effect here. So it's pretty dramatic to me to see that one point of leadership rating, meaning that they rate their leader as one point more positive, has that dramatic effect on the experience of an employee at work. So Nicole, what specific actions can leaders take that cascade into a positive patient experience? And I think you have a term for this, um, rules of engagement. So yeah, so tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I, I started realizing that really 
to change a culture, you have to have rules, right? You have to have rules of how we interact with each other. And then people need to agree on these rules as a course of action and a standard for how we relate. So for example, this really all comes down to emotional intelligence. And many of the things that I teach in my workshops on rules of engagement are uh, really just mindful acts of emotional intelligence. So for example, one of them is getting curious. So when you are feeling, hmm, you know, a little frustrated or upset with the course of action that someone is taking to get curious, to ask questions, things like, well, what else could it be? Or why might this person be acting this way? Or if we're brainstorming ideas, instead of shutting those ideas down or telling people why the budget won't allow, just getting more curious about the underlying reason people are sharing these ideas. Uh, Ted Lasso is one of my favorite shows. And Ted Lasso in one of the episodes says, I don't want to bring an umbrella to a brainstorm. So, you know, just we have to be open to other people's perspectives. So one of the greatest things a leader can do is to be curious. Um, The second thing is always assuming good intent. So having this idea in your head, and it is a discipline, it is a practice of saying, I'm going to assume good intent. I'm going to assume that this person didn't wake up this morning with the intention to frustrate me. (laughs) They must have some good intention. It may be different than mine, but it's still good right? So we're always assuming that people have a uh, good intention. Um, the other thing that tends to happen with people, and this is almost universal across the world, is that when someone makes a mistake or does something frustrating, we tend to go right to judging their character. Whereas when we make a mistake, we tend to judge circumstance. We say, oh goodness, I was late because my kids distracted me or there was traffic or there was a train or I got an emergency call. But when other people are late, we say things like, oh, they didn't, they don't take this job seriously. They're not professional, right? There's a difference. We go right to their, their character. So creating a discipline around reminding yourself that there's a tendency to do that and to think what circumstances might be leading a person to these uh, behaviors. That's so helpful, Nicole, and so many great strategies that you've just shared with us. I'm curious, with healthcare being so stressful, emotional intelligence can fade really quickly and make it hard for people to do some of the practices that you just shared with us. In your work, what two or three pieces of advice do you give teams to sustain emotional intelligence and resilience when things get tough? So the first thing is taking care of yourself. I used to train residents and when I would teach them, for example, maybe I'd give a talk on dealing with uh, challenging patients, or maybe I'd uh, give a talk on um, having difficult conversations. And I'd spend the first half of the presentation talking about all the how. (laughs) And then I'd say, okay, so now the second half of this presentation is how to take care of yourselves. Things like getting regular sleep, eating healthy, meditation, having a, you know, a journaling practice, whatever works for the person. Because if you aren't taking care of yourself, you're never going to have the mindfulness and fortitude to engage in these practices. Things like I'm going to assume good intent. If we're totally safe deprived and full of junk food, (laughs) we're definitely not going to assume good intent. Right. So, the first thing is self-care. The second thing is that self-care and that those practices of staying 
emotionally intelligent should be a discipline. They are regularly engaged in, you set aside time for them. They're on your schedule so that you're always engaging in these practices regularly so that when the heat of the moment comes, you have practiced these things so many times in easy moments that they are like an emotional reflex for you. You don't have to think about them. You don't even have to say, okay, this person is annoying me and I need to assume good intent. No, you just, that is your way of life, right? And then the third is um, just baking it into your routine and the routine of everyone around you if you're a leader so that the culture supports those kinds of attitudes that you overtly discuss things like, um, hey, in this organization, we assume good intent. In this organization, we judge uh, by circumstance, right? So, um, So that you're, have a common and shared language around these these practices. And then the only other thing I'd add here is that in emotional intelligence work, we talk a lot about emotional hijacks. (laughs) And emotional hijacks are when you're upset, (laughs) you know? And the research tells us that when someone is emotionally hijacked, if you give them a problem, they can usually come up with one to two solutions. But if you wait till the person has calmed down and give them the same problem, they can usually come up with seven to nine solutions. So recognizing that when people are emotionally hijacked, they're not at their best space. They're very certain that they're right, but they're less likely to be right. So step one, as a leader, reflect to yourself, am I feeling emotionally hijacked? And if so, is this the best time to engage with this person or have this conversation or try to solve this problem? Or do I need some time to step away for a minute and, you know, or maybe even a a day or two and reflect, calm down, and then approach the the problem or the challenge with a, a new, fresh perspective and a more creative perspective? There's a second part to this. It's also as a leader, recognizing when other people are emotionally hijacked and being able to say, this person clearly is emotionally hijacked. And this isn't the time for me to force them into a conversation about this topic and giving the person permission to also take care of themselves, get some time, get some space and resume the conversation later. There are some of us, myself included, who want to tackle the problem head on and deal with it right away. And sometimes that can be problematic because If you truly want to have the best possible conversation with someone, you want to make sure that both parties are not in that emotionally hijacked state. So one of the things we teach or I teach is actually saying, I'm feeling emotionally hijacked right now. And I want to have a great conversation with you, but I know I'm not capable of having that great conversation right now. So can I please have some space to center myself? and then have a great conversation later. So I teach that to residents to say to their supervisors, supervisors to say to their residents, um, you know, and, and creating a culture where it's acceptable for someone to say that to their leader. Oh, interesting. I think we've all at some point experienced a situation where you recognize that emotions are high, but I love what you shared around providing structure to that in and that there is science that supports you. You're not at your best when you're emotionally hijacked, um, nor is anyone else. So making that space, creating that break so that you know you can come back and have a better conversation. And I think it's so interesting how you really do think you're right. <laughs> you're more likely to think you're right. And I had a, a theology professor in college who said the moment 
you think you know everything is the moment you know the least. <laughs> and so <laughs> I think that's a good good thing to remember that uh, sometimes if you're feeling that heated moment, you are at your least creative and uh, worst problem solving capability, but you're going to think you're so very right. <laughs> so you need to watch out for those things. I think that's where it's so important that you have someone that you can trust that can, you know, sort of call you out on that and say, hey, you know, I see where you're at right now. And, um, you know, pulling out some of those culture tools uh, to, you know, hey, get curious or have positive intent. Um, I worked for an organization um, previously who, as part of their culture, they had a mood elevator. And it had a lot of, of what you're talking about, where it was, it was this spectrum of all the different like emotions or moods that you could be sitting at. And, um, you know, from the, the very low mood of being frustrated, angry to, um, you know, the top joyful thriving and right in the middle was curious. And so it was sort of that, that threshold of coming, going from, being low on the mood elevator to, um, you know, we would always say, Hey, get to curious, get to curious. Because then once you reached that point, then you could start to tip the needle towards, all right, now I'm curious, I'm listening, I'm open. Oh, now I'm, you know, more engaged and here now I'm happy. And you're like moving your way up. Um, but it's, you know, it just, it sounds like that this is a journey that you must take others along with you. Um, and be able to support you in taking these habits and making them, you know, more, uh, or taking these tactics and moving them into a habit, into a, an ongoing sustainable behavior. So an I accountability so partner. Much. I love that so much, Madeline, because I feel like that, that middle is the crossroads, right? And so everything I teach is all really about mindfulness and it's about that, ability to stop time just long enough to, um, you know, like in the matrix movies where everything slows down really, really slow for just a minute and they can see the bullets coming and they can poke them out of the way or dodge them so clearly. And it's creating that discipline of being able to have those moments where you stop time and you choose right? That's freedom. You get to choose. And that's the crossroads where you're curious. And they say that you're only one thought away from a brighter future, right? So if you can stop in that curious place and really consider which way you want to go, you can almost always find a way to come back to connecting with the other person. On behalf of Coffee with the College, we'd like to thank our sponsors. Thanks to our premier sponsors, Epstein UN Architects, HGA, Hush Blackwell, and thank you as well to our preferred sponsors, C.G. Schmidt, Findorf, Paul Render, Nutanix, Plunkett Research Architects, and Quarles and Brady. So, Nicole, Rachel, Madeline, I, I have just loved our conversation. We've built some more on the whole topic of taking time to reflect, to perform well. And when I think about... Um, everything we've said, uh, the title of this podcast, we said, think fast, work well. And a lot of what, Nicole, you described, you do need to kind of create it as a habit so you can think fast in the moment right? Um, and communicate effectively and call a timeout uh, and in a, an emotional um, pause um, moment and things like that. So can you uh, talk a little bit more about how everything we've been discussing 
ties back to helping our teams communicate effectively, stay present, and enhance patient experience? Sure. So I see this as uh, all the things that I talk about relate to interpersonal wellness. So how is the flow between us going? So that can mean between our team members and also between us and our the people we serve as healthcare professionals. So all of these communication skills are super powerful. Um, we provide better care when we are all connected and communicating effectively. So if we're resentful of each other, if we're holding grudges, if we're being short and unkind with each other and telling ourselves all these stories about how our coworkers don't take their jobs seriously, we're not providing the best care possible. We're not moving as a well-oiled machine, a fast, effective machine. When we trust each other, value each other, and lift each other up, that's when the magic happens. On the other um, side of that is the patient, right? So if we're communicating with the patient, um, if we're getting curious, think about how much more we learn, right? Um, If we're opening up conversations rather than shutting them down, if we're getting curious about why a patient maybe isn't taking their medications. You might learn a lot. For example, I have seen many times, I've worked in a lot of um, low-income underserved communities. And, you know, a physician will say, hey, did you take your meds? Do you Are you taking your meds? And the patient will say, yes, I am taking my meds. But when I see them as a health psychologist, I'd say, tell me about how you're taking your meds or how are your medications working for you? Well, then when you ask more open-ended questions, the truth comes out that the patient has decided that they're going to take their meds PRN or as needed. And so when they feel their heart palpitating, they take their hypertension medication. And then this has opened up a whole opportunity for us to explain how that medication doesn't really work that way. But then there's another step. Why are they taking it as needed? Why are they taking it PRN? Well, money's tight. They can't afford their medication. So they're trying to make it last because their co-pays are, are high and, and they can't really make the, the payments. Okay, now this gives us an opportunity to loop in maybe a social worker or a quick form to help them qualify for reduced rate. Or maybe there's a certain pharmacies that offer special rates on generic brands, or we could switch to the generic brand. All these things are major opportunities to help the patient feel heard and also help effectively treat them. I recently um, attended a talk uh, from one from a senior leader, and and something just came to mind that he said that reminds me of translating this to the patient experience, and it was um, shifting the way that you're that you that, that you're first engaging with the patient instead of saying how are you doing today is um, how are we treating you today. Oh, I love that. And, and yeah, and I, I did too. I really love that because, you know, when you, you, in, in normal conversation, when you say, oh, how are you today? It seems like it's just that, um, quick, normal, typical response say I'm fine or I'm okay, or it's good. Um, but when you open it to how you are, how are we treating you today? It's, it's shifting, um, that focus and, and I feel like you can get better engagement. What do you think about that? I I love that so much. And I also, when I was training family medicine residents, I would often teach them to say when a patient's angry or upset, which it happens, it happens a lot, um, to say, 
how do you recommend we solve this problem for you? What can we do to make this this uh, issue better for you? I think that does a few things. It um, de-escalates a little because you're showing that you're listening to the patient, but it also helps the patient understand how complex the problem might actually be. So it creates a little empathy in the patient of saying, gosh, I guess it's not really that easy to solve the problem. I also used to teach the faculty to do this to the residents to say, what would you suggest? What are some good solutions to this problem? Because sometimes people express their grievances, but they've never really taken the time to think about the complexities that are involved. Um, you know, little kids want all kinds of things, and then they don't understand the logistics involved in making a magical Disney vacation happen, right? So helping them get involved in the planning process can be um, a real enlightening moment for them. So with our patients, with each other, I think asking what their idea is for solving the problem can be really helpful. Nicole, as you were describing some of those suggested questions, it took me back to my days working on customer service and the patient experience. And one of the ways um, that I would phrase things when I was doing, um, receiving a concern, working on service recovery is I would say, what were you hoping would happen as a result of our conversation today? Because what I often find healthcare professionals doing is they'll they'll project onto the patient what the resolution would be, and then they start jumping through hoops. And the hoops they're holding up might not be the same hoops the patient um, had in mind. So you may or may not be able to do what the patient is saying, um, they were hoping would happen as a result of the conversation, but at least you know what the target is, <laughs> so you can decide how close you can get to it. That's exactly right, and I think you're you're kind of alluding to something else: is that having a discipline, <laughs> all the things that we're talking about around discipline, right? You're having a discipline, Janet, of asking a certain question in a certain way to gain a certain outcome. So there's a really landmark article in uh, family medicine called sticking the landing. And I think it's from the eighties, but it's a really great article. And what they recommend is when you close a session <laughs> to say, what questions do you have about what we discussed today? And I t- would teach that to residents because it's not an open-ended question of what questions do you have, or do you have any questions, <laughs> um, which is a close ended question. Um, but it also limits the frame of what we have time for in a 20 to 30 minute visit. So um, these are all just little disciplines and practices that we, we are able to um, carefully engage with other people in a mindful way. And that's why we, we call this think fast, work well, because you can think quickly when you have built a habit over time. You don't have to really think, how do I want to phrase this now? You already know how to phrase it, right, Janet? You had that phrase at hand, you said it, and it was effective. So we can get curious. We can assume good intent quickly because we've practiced. And then we work well, meaning, yes, we're good at what we do, but also we feel better. We feel calmer. We feel more connected to each other because we have these practices in place that are constantly bringing us back together and helping us connect with each other as humans. I'm smiling as you share that, Nicole, because um, for a while there was a a TV show, you cited Ted Lasso, a healthcare TV show that my husband and I enjoyed was New Amsterdam. And the uh, 
the medical director of that uh, health care facility had a catchphrase, how can I help? And it was his go-to catchphrase for any situation, how can I help? Mm-hmm. And you're right, those like um, guideposts that you hold on to can be really helpful to thinking fast and working well. Mm-hmm. I always tell my husband that that's the sexiest question any man can ask. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Nicole, um, you just recently were talking about some of the phrases and consistent practices that you had coached residents on um, to help in those patient conversations. So how how do you recommend um, healthcare professionals maintain their centeredness so that they can truly listen to patients? Because it's listening that has patients feel heard and and feel that they've gotten a positive experience. And there's no faster route to a negative patient experience than having a, a patient or family feel they were not listened to and heard. So this is a question I love uh, talking about and um, thinking about because ultimately we're here to cre- create and provide great uh, customer experiences. So a couple of things that I think really help to hit the the ball out of the park with a patient is number one to, as you said, listen. So how do you let them know you're listening? Okay. The first thing is give them a minute to talk. Okay. We're always in a big hurry. We know we have the clock ticking, but if you give a patient 30 seconds to just talk, sometimes a minute to just talk and what brings you in, how are you doing? Tell me about, you know, how we can help you. They often perceive that they were given four times as much time as they actually were given. And they they tend to rate their experience much higher. Also, in additional research, when they when they asked patients to rate their, their providers, they rated people highest when they made them feel heard and when they felt like their, their provider actually liked being around them. They didn't care about their qualifications. They didn't care about their expertise. They didn't care about their technical skill. They cared about how you made them feel. So listening to people is the most powerful tool we can we can engage in to just really impact those patient experience scores. The other thing though, is that sometimes when we really listen and we're really truly mindful in a moment, Sometimes we're a little drained also, you know, there's, it's a lot to take on other people's burdens. So one of the things I encourage people to do is what I call spreading a little love dust at the end of a session. Um, So saying something nice to the patient, complimenting their scarf or complimenting their engagement in their healthcare journey or complimenting the person who drove them to the healthcare journey and thanking them for for helping partner with us to provide them with excellent care. Um, These are great little practices to build you up and have a little bit more of you left for the next patient. And if that doesn't work, than just taking a breath between patients. So we we run a marathon all day. So in between each patient, pause as you hold the doorknob, take a deep breath and recommit to just letting go of the past and being truly present with your patient. That last piece that you said with the pause right before you open the door, I saw a video that reminded me of this and it was a teacher walking down a hallway uh, in an empty hallway in a school and you could see the exhaustion 
on his face as he's walking down the hall um, alone. And as he's approaching the door to his classroom and the door is closed, he pauses and you can see him almost like, you know, jiggle his shoulders. He loosens up his shoulders. He's practicing his smile, almost like an actor would like doing those facial expressions and loosening up the facial muscles. And like, he's getting himself ready to walk into that room. And right as he's opening the door, he has just the biggest smile on his face. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and the students don't know, you know, how exhausted he may really be or what at least that, that brief clip was portraying. Um, And so it just reminds me of, you know, you can, you can definitely translate that into the healthcare setting into the fast-paced environment that so many of our providers are working every single day and having that pause before you go into the room so that the patient isn't also responding to your own exhaustion or your own frustration, something that they have no control over um, and you're making it the best experience possible. That's exactly right. And they, they, um, you know, we don't want to hide when we're feeling overburdened. We do want to have time for ourselves and we don't have to pretend that everything is easy and just fake it the whole time. But they actually did research on this practice at Madison, um, Wisconsin, UW-Madison, and they found that patient uh, experience ratings shot up when they did this practice of the pause and they had a discipline around what they did during that pause. And also the the practitioners rated themselves feeling a little less burdened and that they building that in, baking it into the system of the day and the flow of the day made the difference for them as well. Wow. Such a simple thing. And what a great strategy and tool for people to take away. Right. I think that's important, Rachel, what you said, simple. None of this stuff is really that complicated, but it has to be a practice and a discipline. So Nicole, on behalf of our listeners and Madeline and Rachel and I, I again want to say thank you so much for taking time across two podcasts for us to share things that are practical yet powerful in terms of um, taking care of ourselves, taking care of our teams so that we can be there and take care of our patients and others that turn to us for care and and services and support. So just want to close um, with a few um thoughts. Remember the rules of engagement, be curious, assume good intent, and don't lead to judgment. And my goodness, if if those rules of engagement um, become part of um, the heart and soul of our organizations, we'll all be in a better place. We'll communicate not only more effectively, but more compassionately. And we'll also reconnect to purpose, our topic of our other podcast, Nicole. So thank you so, so much, uh, Madeline and Rachel. You are wonderful observers and ask great questions. So thanks. And listeners, we look forward to you joining us next time for Coffee with the College. This podcast is copyrighted material of the American College of Healthcare Executives, Wisconsin Chapter 2023.